Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. You know, the Pharisees came together after Jesus came into Jerusalem, and people are just ecstatic about Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And you remember the account as he comes down from the Mount of Olives, they're putting down palm leaves and myrtle and all that, and Jesus coming in riding on a donkey. The Pharisees look at one another and 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 the world they say has has gone wild over the fact that Jesus has come to town. And they make a statement. They say the world has gone after him. I wonder if that's true. Is the world, or has the world gone after Jesus? Well, let's look at our text. Beginning at John chapter 12 and verse 12, <clears throat> the apostle writes, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on the donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. And that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out and met him because they heard that he had performed the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we need to ask ourselves, have, have we gone after Jesus? Or is he just a side note in our lives? Father, do we look at the church as being blood-bought? Or do we look at it as just being an organization to which we should belong? Father, do we look at the church and realize that it was paid for by a great price? Or do we just see it as a sign and a symbol of the culture in which we exist? Father, teach us today the real truth of who Jesus is and why he's coming to a world. In Christ's name, amen. We read in our text for this morning that a large crowd of people had gathered in Jerusalem to attend the feast of the Passover in the city at that time. There were people from Galilee, Judea, and of course, people from Jerusalem. There are some estimates that these crowds during the Passover season could be as much as two to two and a half million people at one time in the city of Jerusalem. Many of 
those from the region of Galilee. Now, when I say the region of Galilee, we're talking about the area that would be up around where the Sea of Galilee would be, would be far north of Jerusalem, but just straight, straight north, right, right up the Jordan River from Jerusalem. You have, the, you have the Dead Sea, then you have the Jordan River going all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. And that Sea of Galilee is not very big. It's only about 12 miles. See, this, this small, small pond of water, just about 12 miles long at best. <clears throat> but that region around the Sea of Galilee is called Galilee. And that's where Jesus had most of his ministry was in that region of Galilee. Most of his miracles were in Galilee. The people who lived there had great opportunities of seeing Jesus. But at this particular time, because it was Passover, the people from Galilee had, had uh, traveled south, or as they would say in biblical times, they traveled up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sat high on a hill. So they would travel up, even if they were going from north to south, they would travel up to Jerusalem. And about two to two and a half million people would be there at a given time. And these people had witnessed or have heard of the ministry of Jesus. And also many of those in attendance in the city of Jerusalem at the Passover, having heard of Jesus, were anxious to see or hear Jesus for the first time. They had not met him before. And still there were others who heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they were wanting to see Jesus who called Lazarus out of the tomb. So there were, there were multiple reasons why people wanted to see Jesus. Not only was he a, a great teacher, a great preacher, but he was a great miracle worker. I mean, who else could raise people from the dead? A lousy funeral director. He never had a successful funeral. But he could do the miraculous. Even dead people came to life through Jesus. When they heard that Jesus was going to be in Jerusalem, they were eager as to having the opportunity to see him who was able to raise the dead, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, calm the storms, and cast out demons. Many wanted to meet the man who could do miracles, but not so much the one who could bring change to people's lives. We're really not interested in people who could change our lives. We, we, we want the, the exciting things. We want to be held in suspense. We want to see the miraculous. We're not looking for a life to be changed. Who cares whether our life is changed or not? What many or perhaps most of the people were hoping to find in Jesus was not so much a, a savior of souls, but rather a miracle-working king for their people. Jesus tells these kinds of people, those who experienced his feeding of the 5,000, he tells them, truly, truly, 
I say to you that you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You're looking for me not because that I am a sign that God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. You're not here because God is with you. You're here because you're able to eat a loaf of bread and a fish. Jesus doesn't want those kinds of followers. Jesus wants followers whose lives are changed, not whose bellies are filled. Their thought was not to have a heavenly king who would reign over a heavenly kingdom. They were wanting to have a physical king with a kingdom belonging to this world. The issue to them was not a spiritual need met by a spiritual revolution, but a physical desire to be unshackled from a tyrannical government that they neither wanted nor did they like. In short, they wanted self-autonomy, self-authority, and self-determined destiny. When you want your own king, you want that king because of what that king can do for you as far as government is concerned, as far as boundaries are giving you, given you, whether you live in a tyrannical government or whether you live in a despotic government, whether you live in a monarchy, whatever you may live, or a president, you want somebody to rule over you that has the same heart that you have, that believes in the same issues that you believe in, that wants the same kind of society that you want. You're not looking for a king that's going to change your life spiritually. If a king says, vote for me and you'll be better off spiritually, how many votes would he get or she? How many? I would dare say very few. But if someone were running for office and said, I can give you self-authority and self-governance and self-autonomy, then you may vote for that person. That's the kind of king people are looking for. That's the kind of president we're looking for. Someone who can give us what we think is important to us, but not to change lives. We find the same type of desire in Exodus chapter 32. When Moses had not come down from Mount Sinai for a period of 40 days or so, the people had gathered around Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, Aaron, and they said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. The nature of the person unchecked by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit will lead them to look for and to find a God who will yield itself to the whims and the capricious attitudes of that unregenerate people. We want a God who will do what we want Him to do. If we want to go back to Egypt, 
We want a God who will take us there. If we want to eat meat every day instead of manna, we want a God who will provide that for us. If we want to be self-governed instead of being governed by a theocracy, but we want to govern ourselves, then we'll find us a God who will give us that type of government. But we don't want a God who will change our lives. We want a God who will feed us and clothe us and make us in charge of our own desires. Hmm. Many of these same types of people wanted the very things that Jesus refused to, to accept from Satan. They wanted a God who would provide them with food. That was the first temptation. We want a God who's going to give us food. The second one that Satan tempted with, with was, we want a God who will do the miraculous. And a third temptation, we want a God who will be an earthly king. The very things that Satan tempted Jesus with are the same things that the people wanted from Jesus. Feed us, do miracles, and be our king. But don't change our lives. The people saw in Jesus someone who could or would give them these things, but they did not look at him as being a Savior, a Savior who would change a person's life. Why would I want my life changed when I can go out and sin with impunity? Why would I want to be condemned for doing the very things that are evil and I enjoy doing them? When they saw Jesus coming to Jerusalem, they must have felt that their hopes and wishes had finally come true. Food, miracles, and governmental freedom and prosperity was about to happen. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. A donkey, a burden bearer that presented to them the Prince of Peace. The members of the religious group known as the Pharisees got together, got together and began to blame one another for allowing Jesus to come to their city and to let him take over the hearts of the people. Verse 19 of our text states that they had said to one another, the world, the world, listen to it, the world has gone after him. So here's where we should take some time and examine the idea of the world going after Jesus. But by that I'm asking this, in what way has the world gone after him? The word world, as used here in the Greek, is the word cosmos. You get the word cosmopolitan. It has varied meaning, meanings, but in this case, it refers to the majority of people in a particular place. When they say world, not everybody in the world was there at Jerusalem. I don't think Jerusalem could hold everybody in the world, even at that time. If there were 80 million people in the world or 100 million, I have no idea how many people in the world at that time, but I don't think that Jerusalem as a city could hold that many people. It could hold a couple of million people for sure. 
but not 80 or 90 or 100 million people. So the world had not gone after him. But what they could see, the world in that particular region that the people had gathered from, from all around, from Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem itself, they had they'd come together, Jerusalem everywhere had gathered together because it was a feast day. They had gathered together. And all those people, when they saw Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives, were excited to see, here comes the miracle worker. Here comes the food provider. Here comes our new king. He's going to get rid of the Roman government. He's going to set us free from these Romans. We don't like the Romans. The cosmos, the world in that particular place. To the Pharisees then it meant that a great number of people who were in Jerusalem at that time had gotten together and they were admiring Jesus. However, the word world in John's gospel in many or most instances means people everywhere without any racial or ethnic distinctions. By the way, when you read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We look at that word world and the first the first inclination we have is to say that it means that everybody without distinction or everybody without exception, which does it mean? Everybody without distinction or everybody without exception. If Jesus loves everybody equally through the whole wide world equally, then what is the implication of that? Universal salvation. But if Jesus loves everybody, whether you are a German or an Italian or a Greek or a Lithuanian or from Madagascar or from Central America, wherever you're from, if Jesus loves everybody without, without distinction of what nationality or ethnicity you are, then you're getting the idea of John 3.16. Because the Jews, to them... Jesus loves only the Jews. And Jesus is saying, look, I love Jews and I love Gentiles. I love male and I love female. I love black and I love white. And I love brown and I love red and I love yellow. That would be a shocker to a Jewish person to know that God loves the Gentile as much as he does the Jew. That would blow them out of the water. So when you look at John 3, 16, that would be a revolutionary thought 2,000 years ago. For God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Without, listen, without distinction. Without distinction. The Bible makes it perfectly clear that the majority of the people during the time of Jesus, and yes, even today, do not have any saving belief in Him whatsoever. You can determine for yourself by looking at John 
John 2, 23 through 25, John 6, 60, John 8, 30 through 47, John 12, 36 and 37. You can, you can determine that for yourself. And let me share it with you, this, this passage from John 2, 24 and 25. He says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. To who? To other people. I'm not entrusting, I'm not, I'm not going to just put my faith in you. For he knew, it says, he knew all men. That doesn't mean just the male population, it means all of humanity. He knew, he knew all people. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In essence, Jesus knew that you and I and anybody before us are just a bunch of sinners. I'm not going to trust myself to you. You're a bunch of sinners. In Jeremiah 17, 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. He says, I test the mind. It means I examine the mind of people. And you know what God finds? When God examines or tests our mind, what, what do you suppose that he would find in us that is so well-pleasing to him? He goes, Wow. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I came for an old so-and-so. He said, I'm not entrusting myself to you. I know, I know what's in your heart. I know what's in your mind. The lustful thoughts and desires and evil intentions. I know that. Jesus did not put his trust in man because man's heart, if it were left to its own devices, can and will only produce a spurious, non-genuine faith. Now, why do I say that? I have often said before that faith that saves, listen, faith that saves, that is genuine, is a gift from God. Listen, the faith that you have to put your trust into Jesus is not your own. It is a gift from God. It becomes operational and productive by and through the proclamation of God's Word. And, you, and we know that because of what Romans ten seventeen says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Folks, this means that if anyone is ever going to be saved... You or I or anybody else before us or after us, anyone's ever going to be saved. If saving faith is ever to be active, then the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is to be preached. That's how it works. That's the way God had planned it. It's not God's plan B or plan C. It's God's plan A. You preach the good news concerning Jesus Christ. What is that good news concerning Jesus? That Jesus came into our world. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He died on a cross. He was buried, and he was raised again on a third day. That's the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Preach that. And the Holy Spirit uses that, and he convicts individuals, not, not whole nationalities, but individuals, just like he did you, he convicts individuals of sin and righteousness. 
And because he convicts us, he regenerates us. We're able then, because he, in essence, if I could use this terminology, he had breathed into us who are dead in our sins. He breathed into us a breath of life. And we come alive because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Then we're able to put our trust into Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. You do not determine the day you're going to be saved. Don't ever tell anybody, I'm going to wait till next week or next month. to do. That's ridiculous. When Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem on that Sabbath day, and we know it was the Sabbath day he went there because John 12, 1 tells us that. He did so knowing that this was a journey to the cross. It was the beginning of a week that would culminate in his death. But for those of us to be saved, it would be for our life. Jesus dies, we come to life. Jesus is raised to the, from the dead, and we are raised with him to walk the newness of life. What a gift. What a gift. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem... It is his gift to us. It is his final ride that will soon usher him into glory. Oh no, my friends, the world has not gone after Jesus. Not in belief, nor worship, nor in fellowship with him. The world is blind to the things of God. It has deluded itself into thinking that there is a spirit of good in all humanity. I heard one politician say that we know that there's a spark of deity, a spark of good in all, in all of us. Where in the world, what Bible translation are they reading? That's not in Scripture. Let me say this in perfect, perfect English. Ain't none of us any good. What does the Bible say? Let me, let me just tell you what the Bible has to say about us. You know, we love us so much. We're the most narcissistic society I think has ever roamed the face of this planet. Here's what the Bible, here's what the Bible, I don't care what the politicians may tell you about the Bible. I want to tell you what God says concerning that statement. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, quote, from the Word of God, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, or there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become useless. There is none who, do, who does good. There is not even one. How good do you think we are? Read that and tell me how good you are. Is there a spark of good in all of us? Is there a spark of God in all of us? No. We're dead. D-E-D-D. -D -D, dead. Listen, it wasn't Jerusalem who came to Jesus. It was Jesus who came to Jerusalem. Likewise, it wasn't the world who'd come to be at the birth of Jesus, but it was Jesus who came to this world. In his birth. No, my friends, the world had not, has not, nor will not on its own intentions come to Jesus. Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, not to be 
its king, but to be its savior. He didn't come to do a miracle. He came to change lives. Few people want that kind of a king. A king who will change your life. They want a king who will give them food and miracles and autonomy. He, the Son of God, is our King of peace, King of righteousness, the, the King of a kingdom that shall never end. He rode into Jerusalem, and the people praised Him. By the end of the week, they cried out, crucify Him. But friends, I want to I assure you something. This is all part of God's plan. I don't know, I don't know if you, I, I, I think you probably know this, but let me just read you something from Acts chapter 2. Peter, at, at, at Pentecost, gets up to preach. He gets up to preach and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, now speaking of Jesus, this man delivered over by the Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Listen, it was God's plan. Not Pilate's plan, nor the Pharisees' plan, nor the Jews' plan. It was God's plan. As I read for you last week from Isaiah 53, it pleased God to bruise him. Why? Because then he could bring people like you and myself into his kingdom. Transfer us out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I believe that in his mind, our names were imprinted in his own mind and his own heart because we are his church. We are his bride. We are the household of faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame. And he made us his children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that, uh, Lord, thank you that Jesus rode into Jerusalem with a mission in mind that he would go to the cross. Because in that cross, Father, there are you, you, you there are people like Folks out here, myself, millions of others all over this world who are brought to that cross, co-crucified with Christ. When he raised, we are raised. He is seated at the right hand, we'll be seated in him at the Father's right hand. Lord, you've made us your church, your bride, and for that we are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.